How's it going? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, today is going well. How's your day been so far? Today is going well as well. I am training for a half marathon. And so I'm doing for the first time, just breaking off of a hypertrophy focus, not breaking off from it as a thing that I'm doing, but turning that down to see how little can I do and still maintain while pushing an, a completely alternative adaptation. I just finished a run. I fucking hate doing cardio. I hate it. I'm terrible at it. I have asthma. I've, I mean, just, I'm, I'm, I've all the like uh, genetic deck stacked against me in terms of like cardio, cardiovascular adaptations. And I've also like, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because that means I'd never work on it because I've always been bad at it. Um, and so, yeah, so that blows, just did a run. Like just, I'm disgusting. If you're watching us on YouTube, like I'm just a sweaty mess. I got a protein shake, but it's going well. You know, people are talking about this like runners high and stuff. And I have no idea what they're talking about. It's like, don't enjoy it at all. Like I'm, I can see the fun in it, I guess, but like, I don't feel it. And I just like, uh, just a, been a funny thing. And so whatever, small sidebar. Um, but yeah, it is what it is. And so I, I'm uh, happy to have you on. You have, we're going to talk about a couple of things here, but I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself, tell me selfishly as well, because I know a bit about you, but not the whole spiel. Um, and so tell me, tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do, you know, why you're so passionate about this space. Of course. So at this point, I have uh, been coaching online for the last uh, eight years and been working with uh, individuals in the general population to uh, competitors, men, women, the whole nine, and have been fortunate enough to, to build out a staff of coaches as well who uh, are coaching online as well. We do a lot of education work uh, on YouTube and with our podcasts and all that fun stuff. And uh, to go back to kind of how I got started would be uh, we started with YouTube videos while I was in college of just documenting the process of being very interested in, in bodybuilding and what it was like with college and then also working full time. So it was like I had 16 credit hours with school. I had 20 to 30 hours of working at the vitamin shop. And then I was also pursuing uh, becoming a bodybuilder. And it was very relatable in that sense. And so we were able to build a, a great community, a small community, but a great community um, through those YouTube videos. And that was kind of the origin of things. And even further back, I had a great coach through high school football, actually, um, who was the strength conditioning coach who I have a great relationship now and, and have as a mentor and um, those different factors that really got me into the enjoyment and um, overall just enjoying lifting as well as the importance of great mechanics within training because that was instilled in me from the moment I started working out and has been a catalyst for me as I've gotten through coaching. And um, if, if anyone is familiar with me who is listening as well as if you go and check out our YouTube channel following this, um, we'll find that that is the the driving force within a lot of our content of just doing things properly and um doing things safely and maximizing hypertrophy and all that fun stuff so um, i love 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 training it is something that i have to my core have continued to grow more and more fond of from the time that it got introduced into my life and very appreciative of that because this is the the body of work that i have delved so deep into so appreciative that i've continued to grow that love and passion since then Dude, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I've had so many people on the podcast that are like, oh, you know, I was a personal trainer and I, you know, I'm passionate about lifting and I did some competing and then I became a coach. And let's not, you know, that just because your your story is a bit cliche doesn't mean you're not an amazing coach. You're adding another layer of like complete cliche of like, you know, I worked at Vitamin Shop or oh, I worked at GNC, which is hysterical. Because <laughs> if you had to like list out like the most cliche, like, meathead like like recreational lifter turned meathead turned competitor turned coach like you know whatever i mean it, it doesn't 
make it doesn't like a uh, predispose you to being good or bad at what you do, but it's yes. hysterical. I want to touch on that for one second because I've not had somebody on who's gone through that exact path of like, tell me a little bit about working at Vitamin Shop back in the day when you because I was a I've been a personal trainer since I was 18 years old and just have said and done and suggested things are just absolutely ludicrous. Um, things that haunt me in my dreams sometimes that I told people. What's the craziest thing that you've sold or believed or uh, is some form of like thing you look back about that time where you're like, that was a ridiculous moment? <laughs> oh man, this is uh, so to even give a greater context to this, I went to college initially to play baseball. I played baseball for two years and then decided that um, I wanted to pursue exactly what I'm doing now. And my parents said, great you have to find a way to supplement the um, scholarship that you're now just throwing away type situation. And so then that's when I started on Facebook, actually just direct messaging people um, trying to sell training programs. And that was kind of the, the basis there. And then I was also started working at the vitamin shop to answer the question with uh, the craziest thing. There was a product I can, I can see it now. It's a, it's a white box with black and orange lettering. And it was something to do with growth hormone and it was extremely popular and it had nothing to actually do of increasing overall growth hormone secretion or anything of that nature. But there was a slew of people who very much so thought it was uh, fantastic and average transaction value was something that was driven into our mind of this needs to be high every single day. And that product I think was like $118 a box. So driving up that average transaction, that was a, a big driver. And so we sold a ton of that. And I was always curious of, I can't believe people are just continuing to come back, referring their friends to come and get this product. And people are just buying in because I, I did my own research on it. And it was like, this has nothing to do with much of anything, but the placebo effect for these individuals was so strong that it just kept selling. So so that was probably the um, the most crazy. Tomcat Ali before Huberman would have been a huge one as well. That was very popular uh, with the the male demographic at Vitamin Shop. This would have been many years prior to to uh, Huberman popular popularizing the the supplement as a whole. Um, but those would probably be the two that we sold a, a crap ton of. I bought more Tribulus and ZMA. Mm. I mean, ZMA is not, you know, it's just like whatever. That's just like zinc and magnesium. It's not some foofy nothingness. But man, just the amount of, first of all, hysterical, you call it the vitamin shop because that's how you know you actually work there because you call it the vitamin <laughs> shop. Nobody else calls it the vitamin shop, um, <laughs> which is a dead giveaway. But yeah, that's hysterical. I mean, I'm thinking of so many. I would just go in and, and I don't know about you, but um, you have a nice backpack in the background. So there's like a little bit of a consumerism in you. In you. And so like, yeah. like I used to, that used to be something that would like cheer me up, would be like walking into vitamin shop or GNC or better yet, it's the, the best place to go is your like off brand, like mom and pop, like guy who's like way juiced up out of his mind, who just decided to open a vitamin shop, sell steroids out of the back. Like that guy always had the best stuff. And you would just go in and like for fun, you'd buy like some obscure supplement or like some obscure pre-workout. And you're like, oh yeah, this new pre-workout, it really hits. And it's like either just more caffeine or has like one, one, three dimethyl in it, or, you know, just straight methamphetamine or just like, uh, you know, I want to say good times, but like mostly like an ignorant time, but yeah, definitely look back on those times, like kind of fondly of like, you know, just like a summer of college being like, oh, just go pick up a pre-workout, take like 300 megs of caffeine at like 6, 7 PM for an evening workout, with just like no under understanding that that's just a terrible idea. And so, yeah, yeah, definitely some memory lane there for sure. 
the uh to speak on the excessive caffeine late in the evening when i was when we were making those original youtube videos we were training at like 11 o'clock or, or midnight and taking 300 milligrams of caffeine and honestly i to my remembrance i slept okay following those evenings have no idea how that all worked um but i also think that that's why i'm extremely sensitive to caffeine now as an adult i very much so abused it at that time in my life and now it's like i can only have so much per day yeah you, you also it just like wasn't abnormal to like go to bed at three and like wake up at 11 and you're just like circadian rhythm was all out of whack or you're just like voluntary time of you know, being awake was totally different. I definitely just like yeah. would, would pound a pre-workout, work out at eight, but then like it was normal to stay up till two and then sleep until noon. And so, yeah, that that kind of does track, I guess. And and I don't know, something about being a kid, just like you didn't know there wasn't ignorance is bliss. You like didn't know that that was a terrible idea and you were just like would decide to go to sleep and you just could, yeah. Right. Yeah. Cool. So I actually first found you, ironically, off of, I don't know if we were talking about this after I hit record or not, but you were talking about a YouTube video that gets a ton of views. I think I originally found you searching for prime equipment for my home gym. I was like, I want to buy, you know, it's like, you know, a little bit of a foray into obsession of resistance profiles. And I was like, okay, here's Prime and, and Stride and a couple of these companies that are actually making <clears throat> equipment for uh, that, that you can customize a resistance profile. And I came across uh, your YouTube video about your home gym. Um, and and I, I'm, I will use home gym, uh, like metaphorically or in air, in air quotes, because your home gym is like nicer than most people's, you know, big box gyms. And so when I talk, when we're going to talk about your home gym, if you guys don't, you know, if you don't know, I'll, I would love to attach that YouTube video in the comments. You have the most ridiculous home gym. It's like my actual goals and aspirations is to have, <laughs> yeah, it, we, literally one of the, we just moved cross country. We we're talking about like one of the things I needed was like a two car garage with no cars in it. And I was like, just plenty of space for like way more, just dumping an entire paycheck into more equipment. But I'd love to to talk a little bit about how and when and why you guys decided that you wanted to build out a home gym. Obviously, your home gym is very extensive. But at what point were you like, why, you know, I don't need, I can't be going to the gym anymore. I want to be doing this at home. So it started with the, um, with me coaching online and I was having a lot of clients who were also training at the gym that I was working out at. And so I was finding myself in a situation where I was doing check-ins all day. And then I would get to the gym as kind of a, a time to be away from them or away from the check-ins and would end up running into three to five clients while I was at the gym and they weren't being rude or anything of that nature. They were just wanting to talk about their training or had questions. And so then it turned into, I was trying to just go in and train, but then I just continued to work for that hour, hour and a half time frame. So it was like, I was having no time off and, and it was becoming something that I was not enjoying to the same degree. And so this is all like at the end of 2019. So in terms of timing for the world, I don't know if we could have timed purchasing gym equipment any better than what we did, because as soon as everything started in 2020 was right when we received the majority of the orders that we made at the end of 2019. So that was wild timing. I don't think that I could have, you know, guessed that a hundred times over, but, um, we started with the, uh, prime function or not the prime functional trainer, but the prime prodigy rack, the prodigy rack had maybe just come out just at maybe six months prior. And so we started with the, the prodigy rack and then we started with dumbbells and those were the first two things and, and a barbell on some plates. Those were the, the first two things that we had started with when building out the home gym. Did you, so I have the Prime Prodigy Rack and just as a selfish question, I'm curious what you guys do as far as maintenance. I love the Prodigy Rack and I tell people if you're, 
you know, listen, you can, the Prime Prodigy Act starts like stock six, around 6K or something like that. But, you know, you can go all the way up to like 9, 10K if you get every single bell and whistle. Um, and I think that if someone's looking for like um, uh, an all-in-one piece, uh, you know, instead of like being, okay, I'm going to get this $2,000 cable machine. I'm going to get this $2,000 squat rack. I mean, the Prodigy Rack still is what I would do with $6,000 if I could go back in time. It is just like, it's just an unbelievable piece of equipment. I, I really... I really can't say that I have any issue with it. I'm curious about what you guys do in terms of maintenance. Of you guys like soaking this thing in WD-40. You guys are keeping it uh, lubed up, or you guys haven't done anything at all. I haven't seen any problems with it. So the having the dehumidifiers running in there is the probably the most important thing. And then we do use some general maintenance from like a WD-40 cleaning it and those different aspects. But I would say we probably clean it at most like once a month. And I, I mop more in the floor and everything, probably the most of all the cleaning because we open the garage door, dogs are running in and all those different things. But um, in terms of overall maintenance, I will say, cause we have, we have prime equipment and then we have Cybex equipment also in there, the prime equipment and the steel, uh, and the, uh, the coating that they use and everything has kept the steel so much nicer where we've had to deal with, uh, a little bit more oxidation and, and rust within the, the Cybex pieces more specifically. Um, so that's another thing. The prime is more expensive, but the quality of the steel and, and the, the finishes that they put on them and those different factors are significantly better than a lot of the brands that you would be purchasing similar piece of pieces of equipment from. Yeah, I agree. I've had no problems with it. It's just an all-in-one. It's a it's a jack of all trades. It's it's Swiss Army knife. It's amazing. Um, yeah. Let's let's talk about someone listening who's like you know. I've done a podcast on some of my opinions on this many 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 months ago, maybe a year plus ago, about ranking home gym purchases. And if you're dealing with a client who's like coming to you and says, okay, like I want to get serious about this, or I was in a gym, I got to move home. Um, obviously it's going to depend a little bit on finances and space, but let's assume that there's just like a general reasonable amount of both of those. You know, we're not looking for the ultimate budget and we're not looking for a closet. Uh, we're looking for a decent space with an okay, you know, amount of money, you know, a couple, couple grand to spend on stuff. What are we ranking in terms of like, what's in the tier one of like, Hey, like here's minimum effective, best ROI thing to purchase for your home gym. So I always start with the the Prodigy Rack because I, I do believe that you can do so much, especially if you have the add-on pieces, if you've got the, the J-hooks to be able to do any of the, um, you can have the pressing, obviously, or squatting and those different factors. You can have the bench in there, so then you can even have more options that kind of go with that. Um, the cables being able to move top to bottom and having the dual cables there is a big help. So that's always the first piece alongside the, the bench that I would recommend recommend just an adjustable bench. It doesn't have to be the, the prime one. I think that there's a lot of great benches out there. It's pretty simple on that side. The next thing, and the thing that I'm always trying to keep in mind is what are the things that are the most challenging to accomplish? Like what is the thing that, um, is the most difficult to get done in a home gym type situation? Because when we have, when we have dumbbells and we have barbells, training the muscle groups through like a lengthened and more challenging position is generally the easiest to accomplish with just those pieces available, but training things like the quads or the hamstrings in the fully shortened position is probably the thing that's like, if you don't have equipment to be able to specifically do that, 
it's probably not getting done. And so that's why generally my second recommendation is a combination piece between a lying or seated hamstring curl with a leg extension. Um, and the one, I, I don't have one myself. I have separate pieces for the lying hamstring curl and the um, leg extension, but I know that prime now has an option for a combo piece, which I would recommend. I think there's other brands that have their own. Uh, Sornex has a, a seated and a, a leg extension combo piece that I have some clients use. Um, so that would be kind of my, my second piece on, on that side. Dumbbells. I think that the, the dumbbells, if you can do the adjustable and you can find a good set of adjustable ones, um, I would recommend that just because of the amount of space that having dumbbells from five to 120 type situation take up, like it's a big part of your, uh, footprint, if that's the case. Um, and then like, I I'm just big on the cable. So if you got the prodigy rack, you're covered on, on that side of things, um, something that's going to allow for you to train your lower body without having to load your spine is a really great option. So I think, a, a small footprint leg press is another great piece. We have the, uh, the Cybex squat press, and I like that a lot. Um, so those would be kind of my first three pieces. If you can call those three, I feel like I named four or five, but those would be kind of the starting place for me. Yeah. I mean, if we're looking at like the full, like a full approach to like, Hey, I want to have a really high functioning home gym. We're looking at, uh, cables, uh, dumbbells, adjustable bench, barbell plates, and leg extension ham curl. I think at that point, we're, we're, we can do everything and everything from there is, oh, well, we can do things better. Um, I think, like you said, having something that doesn't load the spine, something that a hack squat doesn't force you into hip flexion that you can isolate or better bias the quads um, are all, that's where I'm at right now at my home gym. I will shout out uh, Xmark. Xmark, by the way, Xmark, Titan, all, Rep, all these companies are just like clones of each other is what I'm realizing. And I, I have an Xmark, leg extension seated ham curl that actually has a kind of like a redneck engineering way of changing the resistance profile, which I, I, I'm, I was blown away that that was like a thing that, you know, I'm almost, I'm almost, I'm almost a little skeptical uh, that this, that they meant it that way, that this isn't just a happy accident. Um, you know, because there's a function where you can take the pin out and you can, when you're shifting it from leg extension to ham curl, you can actually put a plate on that pin and it changes where the beginning of the arc of the weight begins. Uh, and it begins more parallel with the floor. So it begins in a more difficult position when you're beginning the lift. So it's beginning of a leg extension or beginning of a seated ham curl. And actually just turns out to be like a $700 machine that is a both leg extension and ham curl. And can, you can make it more overloaded in the length of position, which, you know, whatever, that's gotta be gold, de gold derived. But I actually think that you can only make it, the irony is like, it's not like you can skew it so far to lengthen position. So you end up getting just a really smooth resistance profile that I find is just more enjoyable instead of having like every option available to you. It's like, this is either really skewed to the short position, which I'm not really sure if that's exactly what I would want. Um, or having this like really smooth resistance profile. So I've I've shouted that piece out a million times. I think that that's a good purchase, but you're right. I want to touch on that. Like there's just no, God, I run a group program, one for people at home, one for people in the gym. I have a bunch of clients. You do too. I don't know what percentage of yours train at home, but Tra training knee flexion extension at home is just it's just a fucking nightmare oh. it's a nightmare and I've, I've come up with every hack you know i have band versions and single leg cable versions and you know seated cable version seated ham curl cable with the ankle strap and all this stuff and it's just it's like i have clients that are at the point where they have all the pieces of equipment and they are like should i get a leg extension ham curl and here's here's an interesting just like just like philosophical discussion that and you and i were having this actually in dms of like 
should, you know, leg extension ham curl allows you to do an exercise that you can't really do well. So the alternative home options are much worse. But from a just straight up hypertrophy, the actual, from a like hypertrophic stimulus, like the amount of hypertrophy stimulus from those movements, let's say for the quads or the hamstrings, probably isn't as, let's use quads, um, probably is, isn't as robust in it, as investing in something like a hack squat or a leg press just because of the, you know, ability to challenge more of length and position in those two ladder uh, machines. And so, you know, you're kind of at a dealer's choice here of like which you, you know, uh, I would go with the leg cinch and ham curl and I would suck it up with split squats, squats, RDLs, lunges, all of this stuff. In the meantime, uh, as you save up for something else like that, uh, that that's the route I would go. And it sounds like that's the route you would go to because I just find, I find that even though we're in this world of lengthened obsessed, I think just to round out your overall programming from a, I hate using functionality perspective, but yeah, if we're looking at just doing isolated knee flexion extension, there's just no real, I mean, there are ways to do it. There are just like the jump from doing a like sissy banded leg extension where like the bands behind your knees and you do like a half sissy squat and then, you know, stand back up to, to sitting down in the leg extension. is just monumental. Yes. Yeah. It makes a, a huge difference. And I would say that at least for my clients, yes, hypertrophy is a large goal uh, for the majority of them, but none of them are only focused on hypertrophy. Like there's some functionality and just overall, um, I guess it would just, yeah, like uh, being able to work through complete ranges of motion, I find to be tremendously important for the overall function of their body through all the different tasks that they have from a day-to-day standpoint, not just thinking like, this is what the literature is saying within hypertrophy, this is all we're doing type mentality. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What are some of, now we've talked a little bit about equipment. I think, I think cables, dumbbells, adjustable bench, and then looking at a leg extension, great place to go. And then, you know, you can have fun with your hack squat or leg press from there for sure. Um, what about knickknacks? What about little things, sub hundred dollars or, you know, whatever, sub 150 things that are small accessories, you could say that, you know, provide a good ROI that you find that people who are training at home or to pack in the gym bag that you think are like top tier, definitely worth having. So I think that a a pair of D handles that you like the grip to, like the the thickness, the density, those different factors, um, can make all kinds of jokes that you want there. But um, if, if, if that would be the first thing that I would have in place, because I know that I'm very particular with the type of D handle that I'm utilizing. Oftentimes at your gym, you're going to have ones that are like the foam ones, and they just don't feel very sturdy as you're pulling through. Um, so there's I can't remember the I think it's Spuds is the brand that a D handle that I have that is like, I mean, very dense, like PVC pipe type um, quality. I like those a lot. Um, I have been an advocate of the the prime rotate handles for a long time, but to be brutally honest with you, as much as I love prime, the practicality of using them is not as much as I would like to say, even in the instance of I'm doing a single arm row or a single arm pull down. Well, I have to exchange the handle to go from my left hand to my right hand. And the practicality of that, where I've got a D handle that is pretty close to the same and, and more usable if I'm using like Versa grips or wrist straps, I'm going to pick the D handle. And so there's less instances where I'm using the prime rotate handles um, as I, much as I would have thought in in the past. Uh, I like having like the, the ankle cuffs used as, as more handles um, for like push downs or I guess it's really just push downs now that I say it out loud or like a, a rear delt fly or those different things. Those are going to be like 20 to 30 bucks. Um, if you are someone who's doing 
glute kickbacks or anything like that. I like to have a, a kickback strap that's going to go under the foot, not just on the ankle because of the force production and being able to actually kick down and those different factors. Those would be three and, and being able to have, going back to Prime, they have like a short and a long bar. And I think that there's other brands that have made their own renditions of this as well. Um, but this allows for you just to be more specific to the, the range in which you're wanting to have the handles and those different factors. So I would recommend that. Um, those would be kind of the, the first handful of pieces. Um, oh, Rogue has a hip thrust pad. That's a just a... I, it's a it's a thick pad. I'm not a huge fan of just the the foam on the bar, but Rogue has a, a I think it's literally just called a hip thrust pad um, that I like quite a bit. And other companies have their own, but the more dense that that can be and actually make a difference of someone who's hip thrusting 300, 400 pounds of not bruising up their hips and those different factors is a, a lifesaver as well. I think that piece is like maybe 50 bucks. It is 50 bucks. It's like a rectangle. It's instead of going around the bar, it's more of like a thing you place on your lap. It's like a rectangle pad. It's super duper comfortable, super like whatever. It just like makes it less like it's going to crush your pelvis in half. So I totally agree with that. I think you would also agree wedges are definitely in there. Oh, um, yes, wedges. Of course, whether you're doing prime solos, you're getting a decent pair on Amazon. Just please don't get a foam pair. No yoga block. You know, no. no. I mean, listen, man, if you're like doing just body weight stuff. Like you're probably going to be fine with the, with the foam ones, but you're probably going to grow out of doing body weight stuff fairly soon and should, and should. Um, and so, yeah, if, if you get a pair on Amazon, they're like real sturdy rubber, that's going to work fine. I think prime solos are amazing. There are companies now that have made steel ones. I've made metal ones. Um, and they, they work great. And so I, I love the prime solos. I think they are again, the cream of the crop, the best of the best, but yeah, if you're like, if I was like, I threw them in my gym bag for many years and I'm fucking, sounds like I'm going to a construction site every single time. So heavy. I don't mind doing that. But if you're someone who's like, I don't want to sound like I'm going to a construction site every time I pull my gym bag off my shoulder, like just grab a pair off Amazon, like sturdy rubber ones. They're in that like 50 to $70 range. Good, good choice. The rotate handles are a tricky one because if you don't have Versa grips, they are comfortable. It's like a, it's like the mag grips. It's like, if you don't have Versa grips or lifting straps, I think that the actual grip will be superior on a rotate handle or mag grip than just a D handle or your like gym's bar. But lifting straps are like nine bucks. And I would take lifting straps and D handle over the rotate handle. I mean, a million out of a million times such that I haven't used my rotate handles in years. Um, and like you said, I don't have to change it out because there's a right rotate and a left rotate. I think the short bar is a great shout. That was one I was going to say. I think the short bar, I'm not against the long bar. I think you're not bringing the long bar with you to the gym. And the irony is, I almost feel like it's like they they tricked us. Like if they could have made the short bar a little longer, you'd only need one product. Right. Um, it, like the shortest function on the long bar is like, well, if we could make it a little tighter, then we wouldn't need the short bar. And on the on the short bar, if we could make it just a, like two clicks wider, we wouldn't need the long bar. If you're gonna pick one, I pick. I would go with the short bar. I think it's rare you're gonna be doing a lot of pulling from from out from out wide. Um, you know, uh, maybe an overhead pull that wide, maybe. Um, but for the most part, just all basically all the muscles of the back are gonna get lengthened as you bring your arms closer to your body. Probably a good idea to do that most of the time. But um, yeah, yeah. So so short bar is a great shout. I think if you're not interested in investing in the short bar, I think ang angles 90 are a fine kind of mm. intermediary of like, hey, you can throw these in your gym bag and you can bring 
you can kind of have that short bar feel of attaching it to a straight bar at your gym. Wrist cuffs are a new one. I don't know how much you're playing with that in the in the sense of like in the sense of like delt work. I know that you like them for the pushdowns. I think that that's a cool uh, way of using them as well. Especially the stronger you get, the more beneficial that becomes. Just because grip becomes a limiter, just pushing stuff down. Um, I've recently been cuffing up my laterals behind the back laterals, Y raises real rear delt stuff, and it feels okay. I never had ankle pain. I never had issues in my wrists, but yeah, we'll see if that makes a difference. Is that something you've been exploring with? Yeah, I play with it. Sometimes it feels better. Sometimes using the D handle feels better. I kind of just go back and forth. I think that the, the argument between the two is a little bit too nuanced for it to matter as much as people want to make it out to be of like, this is right and this is wrong. It's probably both are somewhere in the gray area as a whole. Um, there was another piece that came to mind. Have you seen the, they're, they're like a hard plastic, but they go around a barbell and they're like a neutral grip. And oh, yeah. you just kind of like, it like clicks in. Yep. Have you, have you used those I before? I haven't seen them, but I've seen, I see them all over Instagram ads. I just get wrecked by sponsored yeah. ads with those. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen a lot of ads for them. I haven't had a specific need for them, but if you were to be someone who only has a barbell and wants to have a little bit more versatility to things, I think that those would be a great option. Yeah. Yeah. Angles 90 do that as well. The downside of Angles right. 90 is you can't, ver- is you can't risk, you can't strap yourself in. So that is the downside of the Versa grip is you're stuck with just your grip strength, which could be a limiter. The wrist cuffs, I'm finding that the biggest benefit for at least application for me as a coach is shortening the the moment arm for clients where the cable is too heavy, even on the lowest setting. So if you, mm. I have a lot of clients who are probably listening to this right now where that want to do a behind the back lateral raise, a wrist height lateral raise, single arm Y raises, Y raises, but their cables on the lightest setting is still too heavy for them to do, you know, more than three good quality reps. And that's when they're holding a D handle in their hand. But by putting the cuff on the wrist or even another inch or two up the forearm, you're shrinking that moment arm and you're actually becoming stronger. Um, And that to me has been the biggest benefit. I've had clients who are like trying to do rear delt flies, trying to do behind the back laterals. And they're like, I can't do it even on 10 pounds. Um, And it's all right. If we like shorten this moment arm here, all of a sudden that 10 pounds, you know, feels lighter, obviously. And so that's been that's been really nice. I think that that's, God, man, some cable com- cable companies, sometimes I'm just fucking blown away at people who make equipment that just like, clearly didn't have an understanding of like who's using the equipment. And, and just, uh, that, that goes mostly for machines. But the one thing, one gripe I have with cables is like probably a stock cable machine for a Globo gym shouldn't be a two to one. It should be a four to one. Um, it's unlikely you're encountering a lot of like 200 pound monsters who like need it to be a two to one. Uh, but whatever, that's neither here nor there, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It is very annoying though. And it it's deflating for the client to experience of like, even on the lowest setting, I can't even lift this fucking thing. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, any other, any other gym knickknacks? I'm trying to think of what I got downstairs. Just kind of like, um, I have you know, a little foam roller, but not for foam rolling, frankly, just for a single foam roller hack squat for home, people who are at home that I like. But other than that, it's just like paperweight. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, any if you if you're doing dips or pull ups or things of that nature, having a weighted belt of some form, I think there's a a really nice one on Amazon. This is another one where I haven't spent a whole lot of money on it. I have kind of like a cheap one from uh, Academy Sports or whatever, but there are some nice ones on Amazon that would be uh, useful for sure. Nice, cool. Let's let's do a little pivot. So you train mo- most of what I see from you on on social media, at least, is uh, is training a lot of competitors. And you know, I, I'll I'll be blunt. I I'm not like uh, I'm not in that scene. I don't have an, an opinion on it either way. I think live and let live. And people who love doing it, I love it. No, God, absolutely support people who are enjoying themselves. Um, but you as a coach, I'm I'm curious what what 
you, what sort of advice, because it sounds like you also have non-competitive clients. Um, mm-hmm. What is something, and I don't mean to put people in a bucket of competitor or non-competitor, but having a hand in both, what would you say is something that each camp could learn from the other? Like a gen pop client trying to go about their health and fitness and, you know, whatever, feel good versus a client who's like, I'm trying to eke out every single ounce of gains and fat loss I can. Is there something that you think each could learn from the other? I think that the non-competitor could learn from the competitor that um, tracking the variables is important and will give reason to why the things are working or why the things are not working. Because with competitors, it's, it is like being very meticulous with every single detail to a fault more often than not, where it becomes more of an issue than a benefit. And you've got to be able to to backtrack a little bit. Um, But for the non-competitor, there are just things within their day-to-day that mean more than what the value they want to place on it Um, from their daily steps to their their water intake, these small things that they just kind of push to the wayside or these small things from a food standpoint that it's like, oh, this isn't going to account for a whole lot. And then they just snack and not track and those different things. So understanding just the small things that are going into their progress that do add up to make a difference. The competitor could learn from the non-competitor to uh, not be so focused on how they look at all times, right? It's like with majority of my competitors, it's a large part of that coaching process is working with them through mentality and getting them to a place where we're not being so hard on ourselves for every single thing and and catching ourselves in this weird angle at, at a restaurant and being like, I look terrible. We need to get into a diet or whatever the situation may be. So there's a lot of just emotional side to the competitor that I don't have with my non-competitors as much because they may not be seeing themselves in that same light or um, what have you. I'm going to jump on a limb because I don't, co- I don't coach competitors, but I've been something I've seen over the last, I don't know, whatever, a couple of years, many years is a case of the shoulds, a case of the, the expectation driven emotions of I should be losing weight or it should, I shouldn't have to go this low or I shouldn't have to move that much or, and, and my guess is I'll guess you can confirm or deny that competitors do that a little bit less that a competitor would probably look at the data and be like, Oh, I haven't lost in two weeks at this many calories at this many steps with hitting all my variables. I guess I'm not in a deficit. And if I'd like to be, I guess I need to go lower. And whereas like a gen pop person, I think will get caught up a little bit more in the, well, I shouldn't have to go that low, whatever their expectation is skewed by whatever they see on social media. But I feel like there's a little bit less emotional attachment to the actual number of calories one is eating and more uh, objectivity around the data and the data driving a decision that needs to be made. Do you see that? I would actually say that the um, the shoulds should are are happening maybe just as much, just in different ways with competitors. Now, the competitor who is more seasoned and and has had greater experience, has competed more times, and has a better understanding of exactly um, what's going on is not going to have as strong of a case of those. But you could probably say that about someone who has had a greater experience within their fitness journey, that they're not going to have the, the case of the shoulds as much either. Because for the early competitor, they're going to have a lot of comparison to other competitors 
online, other coaches online. And if they're spending a ton of time on social media, find themselves in a situation where they're just constantly comparing to different variables and, and these snapshots of, of moments for other people. Same thing goes for the lifestyle uh, individual in, in a different realm type situation. But I would say that for the early competitor, even more intermediate competitor, they find themselves in that situation where in my last prep, I was at this point, um, why are we either not at that same weight? Why are we ahead or why are we behind? Whatever the situation may be. And uh, just comparing too often and not just looking at the immediate data that's in front of them and the things that can be worked on at that time. I, I am fascinated with this because I feel like it's turning, it has turned into a very, it, it maybe it's always been the case, but it's turned into like a very obvious roadblock for people, which is this emotional attachment to what the expectation is at this many calories based on what the calorie calculator said or what their friend did or what they did once or what their friend, whatever, something, somebody around them, what they've heard. And, and so that's clearly happening for you too. Where you're like, Oh, you're dealing with someone. Oh, my last prep, I was at this many calories. I was this weight or I was losing at this rate. Um, how are you navigating those discussions with people to kind of bring them back to a focus on objectively what is happening in reality versus this, this, this kind of like attachment to what they think should be happening. So oftentimes when this comes up, I think that they're just too zoomed in on a particular component of their progress. And so oftentimes I try to zoom out and give more of a full picture of exactly all the variables that are going into their progress, whether that be from a, a training perspective, their sleep, their their stress, whatever the, the thing that is contributing to what they're bringing up. I think that it's important to go through all the details and educate on all the contributing factors so that they can zoom out as well to get a better glimpse of exactly what's going on because more often than not, they're just too honed in on one variable and hanging their hat on that being the deciding factor if they're passing or failing of their progress or anything like that. And once they're able to see all the things that are contributing and probably one of those things that are contributing um, being a bigger issue or thing that they're not focusing enough on or making happen or falling short of on a day-to-day -day basis, then they're able to find better reasoning as to why the thing isn't necessarily working relative to being like beating their head against the, the wall of, oh my gosh, I'm so focused on my weight. Why is my weight not moving? But in reality, as we zoom out, it's like, well, your, your steps are, are very low on a regular basis. You're not doing a great job with your sleep. Your digestion's in a poor position. We've got a lot of things to handle that would be contributing to this weight loss if we could get these things in order. Yeah, that, 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 that's fair. I think kind of I don't know that you have two options. You can go as a coach. You can be a detective and be like, okay, well, why is this not happening? What, what, like you said, let's say, let's look at these other variables. Let's both look at potential reasons why you're not in a place you think you should be. Um, and let's also talk about, um, yeah, so you have, you have a couple of options. You can, you can highlight kind of more of a detective. Hey, let's look at why you're not where you think you should be. You can also look elsewhere for, for places for positive feedback. And so you can kind of deflect from that one variable and be like, hey, but these are actually things that you're doing really, really well that we could focus on more and almost like distract you from this and in the hope that over time, actually things do kind of come out in the wash and things work out well. Or you can actually deflect, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are on, on how you would distribute the, the, the communication structure with this person of like, yeah, but, you know, there's also an element of like, we're wasting time worrying about what should be happening instead of acting upon what 
is happening in our current reality. And I always am torn because there's always an opportunity to what, do what you just said, which is let's get, you know, your sleep's not perfect. Let's, let's, let's dial that in your nutrition, your, you know, micronutrient intake's not perfect. Let's dial that in. You know, have you been getting your steps in, you know, are you getting outside? Are you doing your mindfulness or whatever? Like you can go down the route of like, all right, let's turn these knobs. Let's make sure the knobs are up. But like, do you also find yourself like bringing the conversation to like, yeah, while we do that though, you know, we're crying over spilt milk. We're, we're fighting things that we can't control. We kind of need to be operating with what, like how many times have you taken on a, are you taking on a client that came from another coach? And it's like, oh, when I did this with another coach at this point, I was here. And you're like, all right, well, like, what are we supposed to do with that information now? We kind of still, we still need to act on what's going on here in reality. Are you finding that you're, it's not a struggle, but like you're trying to figure out, all right, how much time do I spend on making sure these knobs are turned up? And how much time do I spend on keeping, you know, my client kind of lasered in on the reality of what's happening and living in that world. It is, it is such a, a strong push pull because you're, you are assessing where that client is emotionally within how they're giving you that feedback. And I think that having the thoroughness to their check-ins or whatever the, the case may be on the phone or anything like that, you're having to just have that constant assessment of if I, I push the direction of educating, is this going to be the more helpful route for them to really see the bigger picture or going the route of deflecting of um, if if we are to focus too heavily here, we're actually missing the the forest for the trees type situation or whatever that quote may be. But um, I, I think that when you go the route of, of the deflecting or another instance that comes to my mind is that a client comes to me from someone else and they're wanting to do five things like there's things within their their gut health that are needing to be addressed and they want that to be perfect but then they also want to lose weight but then they also want to be able to gain muscle tissue and they're wanting to address all three of those very large rocks at the same time and it's like i and they want to have focus amongst all those things where their focus is so spread it's like none of these things are going to get where you want them to be by having your attention spread across all these different factors. And we have to have more of a priority on one and understand that some of these are not going to happen right now if you want this one thing to be better. And it's more than likely that if this thing isn't fixed, then the other things are not going to be good anyway. So we should focus on this to begin with. And so the, in, in that scenario, that's one of the things that I, I will use quite frequently. Yeah, I think it's, a, like you said, it's a delicate dance of, hey, let's make sure we're turning all the knobs, but let's also make sure we're not spending the next six weeks like kicking and screaming about what we think should be happening and, and actually act upon what is happening. So yeah, definitely a kind of on the fence there a little bit, just in the sense of like, hey, I would like to do both here. Let's try and do both. Let's try and work on the things that maybe we could do better, but let's also live in the reality of, you know, operating with the facts. So for sure, definitely yeah. something I, I find to be in in the annoying air quote art of coaching per se. So um, <laughs> yeah. let's talk a little bit about programming for hypertrophy. And I'm, and I'm, and I, I'm interested just because I, you know, there, there are camps always. And there are, you know, if I mention RP method, if I mention N1 method, if I mention revive stronger, like I could probably give like a decent synopsis on how those people program. And, and we'll get into maybe I'll ask you a little bit about kind of what you do and maybe how that might be different in some ways. But I'm curious what you think people when it comes to programming for hypertrophy, executing hypertrophy, executing a program, what are people messing up the most in the sense that some form of overvaluing something they shouldn't or undervaluing something they should? I, th I think this is a great question and and one that um, deserves a lot of thought as a whole to 
kind of talk about the the front half uh, with it being N1, RP, Revive, whatever the situation may be. Um, N1 has been very helpful to me. The the first camp that I had gone to was in 2018. And even prior to that, when uh, Kasim and the guys were elsewhere, I was utilizing some of the methods that they were teaching at that time. And um, I have found within that program design, it's not 100% exactly how N1 goes about things. I'm not that rigid because I do think that there is... Um, shortcomings that come with that rigidity and also what they're teaching is specificity to the person. So it to have rigid protocols with also being specific to a, a one person um, doesn't really jive well. So there is going to be some things that are more gray area than anything. Um, but utilizing that kind of method, if you will, is something that has paid large di- large dividends for me in, in different ways, if you will. Um, but the thing that I feel that is maybe undervalued as a as a whole and it is becoming more valuable now would be the the training intensity side I, I think that now people are becoming and we may be swinging the pendulum too far of speaking so heavily on training to failure or being so near failure and, and trying to assess how often should we be getting to that point and, and what exercises are going to be viable to to go about this and um, I think that if an individual is to be taking a, a bunch of sets to failure, that would be at a detriment. But then there are many individuals who are not taking enough sets to even near failure, and that is also a detriment for them. And so there's a, a happy median that has to be found um, that they're able to recover from and live to train another day type mentality uh, that many individuals are, are missing the um, opportunity to find because they're so fixated on one or the other type situation. Yeah, I think if we had to pick a single variable that people are undervaluing or missing out on potential benefits, it's the intensity side of things and not to be the on the soapbox of like people don't train hard enough. But like if you had to pick a variable where there's the most meat left on the bone, it's that for sure. You know, never have I ever, ever looked at a program of somebody screaming they're not getting results and been like, yeah, man just don't have enough sets or yeah, man, this exercise selection is so prohibitive to you making gains. Nine times out of 10 is like, you're probably not eating enough, sleeping enough or training hard enough. Like we're, we're somewhere in those two aren't hypertrophy related. Only the training hard enough one is. Um, but it, it, I've never had a program with someone like, oh, well, I, that's not fair. Someone's coming from like Madeline Moves or something of like Orange Theory. Okay, now we're, but I'm talking about somebody who's like, hey, I'm doing a program that's for hypertrophy written by somebody who right. like has half a clue about what they're doing. I've never been like, yeah, it's not enough sets or yeah, you know, <laughs> exercise selection is t- just totally prohibitive for gains. And so it's just not the case. And, and so I definitely think that intensity is where people like definitely should be just at least double checking and looking, um, on the end, what I guess, how do I even want to go down that route of like, I've done all the courses done. I've been to a practical. I'm going to another practical. I went like three, two or three years ago. And I went right when Cass opened the new place that he's in now, like the first practical two years ago, probably. And they had no equipment. And so I was like all excited. And then not that it wasn't great. It was awesome. But like, I didn't get to use any of the awesome equipment. And I'm like, fuck man. Like we were talking like, we're on the gym floor, but we only had cables and okay, great. Still, still awesome. But I'm like, I didn't pendulum. I didn't do any of the other prime equipment. I was like, all right, I got to go back and just for fun, just do that again. Just re up on some education. So that's fun. But I'm curious if there are things that you've taken from their maybe deloads change of stimuli approach that you do or don't apply in your own programming. Yeah. So for, and this was another thing that I think may get a little overvalued for the N one crowd is, um, utilizing the exercises that they are 
like popularizing, whether they be just small adjustments to particular positioning or what have you, and getting too caught up in doing the most recent type of exercise that they are, are putting out and getting fixated on perfecting those relative to just getting really good at contracting the tissue and being able to take it through a, a fuller range of motion and those different factors. And so romanticizing the the nuance of um, the different types of exercise they come out with, I think is a little bit overvalued and, and more so bringing it back to the, the middle ground of like, let's just execute really well with a lot of great movements that um, you feel strong in that you can execute well. Um, to answer the the latter question, I, I think that uh, within the the structure of things, I do utilize the the metabolic uh, training as well as um, utilizing the the neuro training. In my thought process, I am using those to get us back to the hypertrophy training of whatever the shortcoming is for the person that I'm working with. So if they are someone who has not spent a lot of time in lower rep ranges and really challenged themselves to get to that intensity threshold, we'll be spending more time in neurological or strength-based training to improve that skill and that trust and confidence in themselves to be able to use those heavier loads because it is going to be such an important piece of the hypertrophy training and getting the most out of it um, when they get to that particular stimulus. And then the same goes on the opposite side where an individual who really struggles from an endurance standpoint and, and starts to feel fatigue, you know, after six, seven repetitions and like, I, no matter what the weight is, I'm way too tired. My heart rate gets too high or whatever the situation may be later into that set or later into the entire session where they're really tapering off and overall strength and um, those different things, then I spend more time with that metabolic training potentially of working to get them into a better uh, capacity to withstand fatigue and those different things. So those would be the main ways. But then when I'm looking at it in the general sense of someone who is great with, with strength training, great with endurance, then I'm using those instances as more of a deload when we're chasing overall hypertrophy. What would be something that would, I know that you mentioned a couple of them, but like on either the neuro or the more metabolic side, which let's just for now say a much lower rep range, maybe a higher rep range, more superset, more sure. systemic stuff. Um, are you are you waiting for a specific marker of, ooh, we should go this route or a certain piece of feedback to, ooh, we should dip out of hypertrophy here? Um, or, or are you doing it more proactive or... I don't want to be proactive or reactive, but like what piece of PS, I know we're coming up on an hour, so you cut me off when you're, when you're good, but um, I'm curious about like, all right, when I hear this, I think, I think, all right, it's time for that. Or are you like, Hey, every fourth cycle, we're just going to do a neuro cycle, whether or not you need it. We're just going to be like, Hey, it's not a big, uh, it's not a big loss in terms of gains. There's probably some benefits. There's psychological benefit of, 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 of some novelty potentially, and the cost benefit of worrying about waiting for you to present that feedback versus me being proactive with it and exposing you to something new. Like, are you, are you waiting for a piece of feedback from a client to say, all right, it's time for us to do something slightly different? It's a great question. So the, when I first started kind of, uh, you know, taking all the courses and so on back in 2018, I was trying to be very proactive because honestly, and, and I want to say at that time, that was something that they taught more so of like, be out in front of it so that you can continue to make progress. And I found that from working with so many different types of individuals, as well as um, training ages, uh, the equipment that's available, all these different factors that being proactive was 
honestly wasting my time as well as making it more confusing for the client to to work with. Um, so what I what I was running into is that the first week or two was spent them or was spent with them acclimating to the uh, exercises making sure that their execution was in a good place what weight am i utilizing for this rep range with this uh, rest period am i supersetting this with anything so on and so forth so those first week or two they were not really having full great sessions and then week three would come around and now we're finally having a good week of training and i may have pulled them out in week four and it's like well we had no we had no reason to come out of that that quickly but in my mind it was like well we've been here for four weeks let's make a progression of some sort or pivot out of the stimulus or what have you and so i've i've gotten to a place where it's been more reactive to the the data as a as a whole and and paying attention to um their recovery where we're at within uh their their training performance how are we feeling through the training um, are we seeing progression within load selection? Are we feeling like we're getting uh, stronger? Do we feel like our recovery is is better from session to session? How are physique photos looking? And and those things those play a, a large role for us. Um, and then speaking to some of the things that I, I spoke about when I was selecting between the strength or the metabolic training. Um, things that they were running into of like, man, I feel like I'm just, I'm tapping out too early in this set. I feel like I have great control and I'm going from an RPE of five and then one rep later, I'm at a nine. It's like, okay, we've got some endurance type um, work that needs to be accomplished for you to have better results in this training. And it's probably good for us to pivot out of this and work on that now. Um, but even for, for newer clients, and I think that that's one thing that, um, has been so helpful for newer clients coming in is that wherever they've been within their training, um, coming to us, whether that, and most of the time it's, I'm training three or four sets, 10 to 12 reps. Um, I, I have kind of like a push pull leg set up, or I have a upper lower split that I have, and but I don't really have anything that's set of progression. I just go in and do the same rep ranges, the set same set volume, those different factors, um, being able to put them into kind of like a descending rep, um, neuro phase is generally my, my first approach of, of having a lot of success because they have a general idea if they're at 10 to 12, if they, they know what they would do for eight. And if we, we can descend that down to four, they can kind of get a feel for, okay, I feel better at eight. And then I can add a little bit here to go to six. And then I can go down to four and really push for overall strength progressions and have a better trust that I can handle these higher loads, um, throughout these different exercises. Yeah. Um, I will pose a devil's advocate alternative perspective that is shadily just my actual opinion is that I'm is I, I love everything you just said and I bet you it is there's amazing results and, and I trained this way for a long time under N1 guys of just being coached by them. And um, you know, the I, I dude, the idea of, of of progressing into lower rep ranges to expose people to higher loads for confidence and for and for obviously neurological efficiency and and things that are going on under the hood. Um, we break into psychologically and physiologically. Psychologically, it's been massive. Just watching people go from ten to you know coming to you to tw doing twelve to fifteen or fifteen to twenty to ten to twelve to eight to six, to eight to ten to six to eight four to six, being like wow, like I feel more confident getting under the bar air quotes uh, with that much load. And, you know, I'm not nervous about it be feeling heavy. I feel confident in myself and that confidence, both psychological and physiological building that efficiency, mega, mega helpful. But I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly skeptical. And in, in a way that I also think the conversation we're having currently and that the words that are about to come in my mouth have, have no actual bearing on 10 year progress, but the idea of spending notable amount of time doing something that is, that is objectively worse for hypertrophy 
with the pretense that that time will then potentiate a greater net gain over the long term is a really tough thing for me to rationalize. Um, and, and so I fall back on like, again, the cool part is what we're talking about here, whether or not you take an approach where it's like, hey, I'm gonna put you through a two to six week neuro phase here because I think that phase will provide you with, with an adaptation that will potentiate over the long term greater hypertrophy gains than having had spent that time doing let's say bread and buddy, bread and butter, mechanical tension, whatever hypertrophy work, um, is a is an is an intellectually stimulating argument, but probably doesn't matter to somebody training over the over a 10 year period. Um, but I love the idea of hey, if we just take a step back and say, you know, okay, maybe it doesn't really matter a whole lot in terms of gains. Somebody trains 10 years and they're alternating between stimuli, maybe 80 you know, 75% of the time, maybe bread and butter, mechanic, transduction, mechanical tension work. Um, and then that 25% split metabolic and neuro versus someone who's like spending 99% of the time doing hypertrophy, I don't think it matters a whole lot, but I do think that gentle exposure to slightly uh, lower and higher rep ranges on occasion, even just for the psychological nature of like, hey, I'm building mental toughness with this heavier load and I'm building mental toughness with this more of a hydrogen ion buildup and pain and suffering that happens at higher reps, I think can build an altogether more well-rounded athlete. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's all, that all tracks and whether or not you're doing it in like a rotation of stimuli proactively or reactively, or you don't do it at all, but you mix it into a bread and butter hypertrophy program. And I'm not talking about a kitchen sink where you're doing singles and fives and tens and fifteens and twenties talking about more logical, more appropriate distribution of that stuff. I'm not sure it matters. I think it's intellectually super stimulating. I'd say over a 10 year period, it probably doesn't matter. And I would say it probably becomes more important in, in your clientele who might be really in the margins of, of I need to scrape up every gram of muscle growth over this and I really need to be managing fatigue because I don't have a lot of calories and um, you know I'm, I'm, I'm trying to diet to like dick skin leanness but also try and get a, a muscle retention stimuli and so um, yeah that was a bunch of word vomit I'm, I'm I skeptic is such a negative word but it's not my preferred method to to utilize full-on um, full-on phases of a different stimuli if the goal is hypertrophy Unless I have a client who genuinely is like, hey, like I like doing that stuff. I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, we should totally do that. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that there's room for, again, kind of like just getting off to it intellectually because I think that we're never going to know. Like there's never going to be a good enough study that's like, hey, these people ran, um, you know, hypertrophy straight through with with routine deloads versus, you know, more of like an RP deload style or something. And these people did this, you know, we're never going to have a large study that actually parses this out. And so it is interesting to t talk about, but at the end of the day, if it's like, hey, I have my client training hard, and I don't want to be that guy either. I've been known to be that guy. I'm like, oh, it doesn't matter. Just train hard for 10 years. Like, it's not that simple, but, you know, I think yeah. there is an element of like, hey, round up the 10 most jack dudes in your gym. And it's like some like, some like, uh, Gold's Gym Jack Dude Blue Zone, where you're like, what are the, what are the commonalities between the 10 most jack people in your gym? And it's probably like a ton of really hard training, food, and yeah. no major injuries, you know? Um, and then, you know, whatever, whatever you and I do with our athletes, it's like, how do I get them to do that? You know? Um, right. For sure. For sure. I'm, I'm curious. I don't take up too much of your time. I'd be interested. Um, I asked you this. I'm not sure. I think uh, why this came to mind is a question for you. I've never asked some podcast, but um, you seem like somebody who's at least in, in a similar way to me. Like I'm on the ball. I'm always looking for something that, that uh, you know, might have a fringe benefit that might have a small marginal benefit. And I'm, I'm never straight out of the gate, shutting anything down. I'll do my own research. I'll, when I say do my own research, I'm not just saying, oh, I'll do it myself and see what happens, but that's certainly part of it. Um, I'm curious what's something that you might either believe in or 
I would phrase it more like something you take a flyer on in the hopes that it might do something, which is how I phrase most supplements, frankly. Um, not to give you the an answer there, but I'm curious what's something that you're like, <laughs> hey, I believe in this, or I maybe believe in this, or I take a flyer on it, um, because maybe there's something there, but it isn't something that's in the mainstream. Yeah. So I think this is another great question because I, I I can I can think about this and I don't have um immediate things that come to mind because I, I do think that um even the the smallest difference is gonna make uh is important to to make happen depending on the the individual, the the rocks. If if the the rock the big rocks are taken care of, the pebbles are starting to add up as well, type mentality. Um supplementation obviously would be one where I, I think that there is certainly a, a value for people to be able to have in place and especially for for those who are trying to optimize things to the upteenth degree, the supplements are going to have a greater value for those individuals. Um potentially even the the training periodization that I just talked about would be something that would fall into that category where I personally have done my own kind of gist to it where I've had success and it's been, I've been able to see the process replicated through different types of individuals. So I believe in it, but I also would say that the, if we were to put it into practice, it's so individualized to the person that it's very difficult to try and articulate of do this for 12 weeks type situation, because we are being more reactive to what the data is showing us. And so it's really only able to be utilized in a one-on-one setting. It's not something that could be utilized on like a, or best utilized, I should say in a grander, you know, uh, like group coaching or selling a program of do this. And this is going to get you X result type situation. Um, so I don't know what, what, what I'll, were, I'll throw, there, I'll throw a couple, maybe it come to mind. And, and, yeah, and so it, it also depends what you de- de- define as fringe and what you look at is like uh, exactly. the biohacky sort of like, you know, not mainstream for me wearing blue light blocking glasses at night. So like a dim red, and I know that some people might be like, oh, that like this like reduction in blue light at night, like that's not fringy, that makes perfect sense. Like don't fucking stare at your phone. Blue light, you know, uh, blocks the release of melatonin and and is very stimulative and that all kind of like mechanistically attracts. Um, but putting on a pair of amber glasses, I don't are they near me? No, they're not. But like red, like dark red, um, basically whether or not we're talking about actual reduction of blue light through the lens into the optic nerve, or we're literally just talking about seeing the world through the lens in a more relaxing tone. I find it to be a it actually a thing that I find myself advocating. And every time I do, I feel a little like tweaked out because I'm like, this is absolutely something that's going to be on like a Brent, Ben Greenfield podcast or something. Um, and so blue wearing blue light blocking glasses at night. And some people, again, might be like, no, actually that that's not fringe. That makes a ton of sense. But um, I have found a profound benefit on nights I wear that if I insist on, on watching TV or I insist on reading on the Kindle or something like that, or I'm like, I wear the blue light blocking glasses and I pass out like immediately like a baby versus like I'm staring at the blue light straight on and I feel mega stimulated. Um, another one would have been for me would have been breath work. Uh, and that is like... Um, Again, potentially not fringy and not biohacky, but small, kind of in the fringe stuff that no one does. But spending, you know, three to five minutes, which is literally no cost in time, but whether that's box breathing or any other sort of, honestly, I think that the benefits of any sort of intentional breathing pattern with an emphasis on, you know, an intentional long exhale, you know, from a parasympathetic, like vagal nerve sort of stuff, like um, can be beneficial. And so that's something that I think, again, on the fringe, I'd be like, hey, like, 
this is actually meaningful, even though it sounds like it's on a Huberman podcast or something. Like, this actually does seem pretty meaningful. Uh, Sunlight in the morning. Again, these might not be fringe. And again, another kind of like blue light circadian rhythm related thing. But again, that is something I've experimented with myself and I'm like what happens if I like get out every morning for for 20 minutes and I sit in my backyard you know uh and face the sun you know and I, I answer dms or something like that and again have noticed some form of difference in energy throughout the day and also ease in ability like sleep latency and ability to fall asleep so those are the three that I wrote down but again depends what you mean by fringe those might be things that you are like yeah dude I I'm not along with those um those actually aren't weird um and so those would be three of mine and obviously some supplementation in there for sure yeah, the the blue light. I I mean, the one test that I often do for clients is that I will have them wear the blue light glasses for a couple of hours and then continue to watch. If you guys like, if if a client is watching TV or a movie um, and they've had them on, just take them off for like five minutes, and you're gonna feel like much more excitatory through your mind at least and be more awake than what you just were. And I think that that's enough of a test of like, you see the difference in that small amount of time. I think that there is some value that's there. Um, I find it to be tremendously important, especially uh, with so many of us just staring at a computer screen or TV or phone such a large part of our day that there's got to be some impact in a negative way to our our visual health of of some way. Um, And so having the blue light blockers is fantastic. Um, I also think that waiting to have caffeine in the morning, I think that that's another one, if possible, which I think that there are a lot of people that it's like, dude, you're crazy. I don't have the 45 minutes to an hour to wait to have caffeine. I need to get up and slam this right away, you know? Um, so I think that having that little bit of time in the morning where you're just having some, some water, some electrolytes, potentially getting the movement coming back and then having the caffeine, I think that there's a, um, a legitimate difference in the, how the caffeine uh, is sustained of the energy that's, that's helped it helped to attain or to be utilized following the the caffeine consumption relative to just having it right out of bed. I think there's a much harder crash in doing so. Um, yeah, what I think on, on that ca- on that caffeine on that caffeine thing, I think that there's like like we can get into the adenosine stuff. We can get into this uh, uh, sort of adenosine cortisol flip and and letting you know we can talk. We can go through that, but even just anecdotally, I think the roll the way you feel when you roll out of bed versus the way you feel like 45 minutes later is so notably different that if you just allowed yourself to be tired for those first 20 minutes, like you wake up rapidly. Um, and so it's kind of like that way you feel when you roll out of bed is a lie. Almost like it's like, all right, give yourself a sec before you really assess the way you're going to feel. And so I don't necessarily time it, but I spend the first hour of the day with my dogs. We can shout out to the dogs here. We can just say what's up. Um, shout out. That's awesome. and, uh, and like, we'll just like go for a long walk and we'll do a little training session or whatever. I'd love training my dogs, whatever sidebar. And you know, I actually, at the end of that hour, like I'm, I feel drastically different. So I'm not like mechanistically, we can go down the adenosine stuff, but I do think if you have the ability to like, if people are like, no, I wake up and I'm super groggy. I'm like, I know, I know, I know. I'm not saying that, that that is a reason not to do what we're talking about. I'm just saying, just try and see if you don't have any caffeine for 30, 45 minutes that you actually might not feel groggy anymore. And, and the whole time you were thinking it was the caffeine doing that, it was also just time passing by that was doing that. Um, so yeah, whether it's, big mechanistic thing or just like you're actually more awake just give it a second uh i I don't disagree i think i think that again it's on the fringe worth a shot sort of stuff for sure um could i think of another one um 
Is is room temperature while you're sleeping a fringe thing? No, but it's, it's definitely not. It should not fucking be a fringe thing, dude. Room temperature <laughs> and a and a and a and a pair of uh, um, an eye mask is actually not a fringe yeah. thing. Should not be a fringe thing. Go broke on your air conditioning, people. I'm telling you, just fucking go broke. 64, 66, whatever. 62. I've heard people go lower. I mean, there's obviously. It's an upside down you. There's such a thing as too cold, I'm sure. But that's definitely, I'm with you. Whether it's fringe or not, I'm with you. I'm, I'm nodding along with yeah. that too. Um, yeah, I'm definitely nodding along um, with that too, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of any other ones. Um, I'm sure that your listeners will be able to chime in, whether they're on YouTube or whatever platform they're listening on to give us other ones. Because I, I have no issue with giving my opinion on anything that that would come about, I suppose. Yeah, I think green supplements is in there where you're like money spent on something that's like more of like a, you're praying, you're kind of fingers crossed is doing something. Um, you know, I'd say a lot of supplementation is that way, frankly. Uh, I'd say that there's probably a top tier of supplements that are reliable in doing something, but another, like I will tell you right now that, that there's whatever, I'm a Legion, Legion sponsors me. And so the, 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 I take the whole fucking gamut of Legion supplements just cause they're free. But like, I wouldn't in the same breath recommend everyone spend all the money on that because I would break them down into into more reliably doing something versus less reliably doing something for sure. And the greens is something that I'd put in the, yeah, the greens is interesting. I don't know if you're, let's talk greens powder for a hot sec. Yeah. I got, I got six minutes by the way, and we can just do greens cool. powder here, but I won't, I won't, I won't make it a leading question. Give me your thoughts. So with the the greens powder, I'm, I'm a in between on this. Uh, it's, it's something where I think that there is, is value to the nutrients that, um, you're going to be consuming from the, the greens. Do I think that it's a supplement that should just go on everyone's list as soon as they start working with me? No, I, I don't think so. I would, I would push more for getting fruits and vegetables into their day. And then if we feel as though that that's still not sufficient, if we were to look at blood panels and, and be able to see things are still in a deficiency of some vitamins and minerals or what have you, um, being in, in that place, or they're in a very immune compromised, uh, job or because of other stress markers, they are immunocompromised in some way, then maybe I would throw the greens in there. I would uh, throw further immune support in just to have all of our bases covered for that particular individual. But I, I'm not in the in the space of to optimize your digestion and to eliminate bloating, you have to you know, drink these greens or whatever. Especially with legions, because legions, I mean, legions is a dense ingredient profile um, that more often, especially when initially using it, if they don't start with like a half scoop, is going to destroy their stomach relative to um, be beneficial, right? It's like you have to acclimate to the quantities that are there because it is backed by a lot of literature, but all of those ingredients in a singular setting is going to be a little bit of a shock to uh, the GI tract. And so I, if my wife is also sponsored by by Legion. And so if I have a client who's wanting to take Legion screens, we may start with like a fourth of a scoop or a half of a scoop and kind of titrate our way to a full scoop um, and certainly not jump in the deep end right when they first use it. Yeah, I don't think I can get on board with any other any other greens other than Legion's. And I hate being, I hate that bias, but like, you know, I had a, a chat with some of the people at Legion about the formulation and comparison, comparing it to the number one, uh, competitor, which is AG one. Um, yeah. and just coming down to like, um, a, a price per serving, a price per, you know, gram of active ingredient, uh, all of those things. And you're right. There is a ton. I mean, that's what Legion's known for is like clinically effective dosing, fully transparent dosing. Um, and AG one is fully transparent too. There's no 
big proprietary blend, I believe. I think there might be some, but first of all, if you're listening, no, no proprietary blends. Like there's just no reason for a, for a, a company to use a proprietary blend outside of just not wanting you to know how much of stuff is in something. Um, but yeah, Legion's known for a clinically effective dose and the greens has a ton of stuff in it. And it's actually not a ton of ingredients, but again, we're talking like five grams of spirulina, three grams of astragalus, three grams of reishi, gram and a half of maca and, and the donchi root plant extract, whatever the hell that is. Um, it's, it's a lot. And that's the point. And, and I think that I'm on board with the only time I'm ever like more bullish about more bullish means loosely, maybe take a flyer on it. That's as bullish as I get. Um, is if people are in a deficit and, and that, that, that being in deficit is, is just a proxy for lower nutrient intake. It's not a perfect, uh, correlate cause you could be in a deficit and just eating super nutrient dense foods. And some people go to a deficit and increase their nutrient intake because of an attempt to reduce hunger. But if you're someone who's like, Hey, I'm just, I like, don't have a ton of fruits and vegetables. I have enough to hit my fiber goals, but it's not something that's like, I love doing, uh, and I'm in a deficit. I'm just getting generally less nutrients because there are nutrients and other things than fruits and vegetables. That's when I might be like, Hey, yeah, uh, you have expendable income. You feel like, you know, placebo wise is something you want to do. If I have a client who's super hyped up about it, I don't talk them down from the ledge there. I'm like, yeah, cool. Like right. take, take a flyer on it. But, uh, yeah, that greens greens is another one. I mean, Man, the AG1 marketing is out of control. It's like, it is, there's it's every, wild. It's wild. They're doing an, I mean, from a business perspective, amazing job marketing it. Unbelievable. Um, but it's so damn expensive. It's crazy expensive. I don't Very know how people expensive. are affording that. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, and they've got the backing from really anyone that they would need. Um, I think, I don't know what, this may have been a year ago or two years ago, but there was because they maybe went public or that like the company went public that they had to showcase their marketing strategy of some sort. And I think that it was like 3 million was being invested per month in um, their marketing campaign. And I wanted to say like two and a half million of that was to Rogan. And so just to, I mean, thinking of that is, is crazy um, for one person and, and understanding obviously one of the biggest, if not the biggest podcast in the world, um, being able to generate that, those type of sales to where the company warrants that marketing tab to one specific person is wild to me. Yeah, dude, they were valued at $1.2 billion. Holy crap. And they only have the one product, right? Or do they have multiple products now? I think they only have one product, but a million different ways to take it. Actually, there's a, there's a D3, there's a D plus K2 supplement, which is smart. That's a smart addition. Um, it's, and they generally give those away. It's like they buy this and then you get a free year of vitamin D or whatever. Yeah. That's wild. That's wild. Cool. Yeah. They spent over 2.7 million in one month. Like you said, a lot of that was on Rogan. Um, wow. That's wild. That's absolutely insane. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's, that's kind of where we're going. I mean, how else are people marketing things these days other than getting people with a big following to shout it out? So that's what Legion's doing. I mean, they're just going a different route as far as like, you know, I'm sponsored, not Joe Rogan, you know? So that's a slightly different route that they're going. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool, man. It's been super fun chatting. I'd love to have you on again, which is like a, a cool dude. And you know your shit. You're up on programming. You're not like, um, you also keep it real. Obviously, like, you know, you, I, you have people who are in the, the I train competitor space that just like becomes a little bit more elitist, a little bit more like less in touch with the day-to-day person. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's the case with you. So it, it, kudos to you for keeping it real, but also pursuing some element of optimal along the way. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was great coming on. I'll, I'll definitely want to come back. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, I'll put everything in the show notes. Anything you want to shout out? You got going on some promo, something that you want me to put in the description? Nothing specific. Uh, you guys can find me at wherever Jordan puts on in the notes. Nice. <laughs> All right, man. Appreciate your time. Thanks, dude. Yeah.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.